about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. It is great to be with you. If you're new visiting, welcome. Great to have you. If you're online, hello, you're with us. It's great to have you. If you're home or sick or with COVID or anything, God bless you wherever you're at today. We are continuing our series in the book of Esther, a wonderful book, a tricky book, complicated book in all series of different ways, but really a great book to do a week before an election because it's full of these political satires and ironies, these beautiful pictures of politics gone desperately wrong. And part of the way the book of Esther is written is to ridicule political authority and power. That's part of the way it's written. But what we see in this chapter is a dark turn in that. These larger-than-life political figures who in the last chapter are indulgent and ridiculously positioned, together decide on a radical course of evil. And as these two collide in this chapter, we see Esther kind of morph into more of a dark comedy of sorts. This is uh, Don't Look Up. There's other ones. Jojo Rabbit might be an equally uh, one to have in your mind. These, These comedies that are humorous or they're ironic or there's satire in them, but the substance of them is actually very dark and disturbing. That's where we get to in Esther chapter 3. But it's very, very important we hold those two together as we read this chapter. And when I say comedy, I'm not meaning this is a laugh out loud kind of chapter. That's not what I mean. But part of the genius of Esther is as we see political authorities doing dark things, they're also being ridiculed. It's a way of demonstrating that their power in doing these things is not absolute. It's a way of giving hope. That is how the Jews read it during the Holocaust, in the midst of countless concentration camps. As a word to them in a dark moment that ridiculed the powers against them and gave a possibility of hope. Viktor Frankl uh, reflected a lot on this, and he said this of humor, of this kind of comedy. Humor was another of the soul's weapons in the fight for self-preservation. It's well known that humor, more than anything else in the human makeup, can afford an aloofness, an ability to rise above any situation, even if only for a few seconds. This is how Esther helps us. We are not in the dark night of the Holocaust, nor are we in the position of the Jews in Susa. But we are in a world where political authority is perhaps leading us into deeper and deeper crisis, where things are running amok in difficulty. And we too might need a a word of hope that these powers are not ultimate, and maybe there's a bigger one. So we're going to examine political authority in this chapter, Esther 3, and look at its failures And look at the hope in those failures as we move through as well. 
four things to say on that. The first thing we see here, though, is a bit counterintuitive to everything else that is happening. And it's in the character of Mordecai, the Jew we met last week, who is the uncle of Esther, the main protagonist in the story. Now, Mordecai is an uncle who has adopted Esther as his own. We get to feel a bit warm and cuddly about him from chapter 1 and in chapter 2. But he's also complicated. He tells Esther to hide her identity. And he seems a bit suspect as well as Esther. He's not let off clean at all. He's a bit compromised too. But in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 2, we see him do something unexpected with his political authority that is ridiculous in chapter 1. He respects it. Have a look. During that time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Now, after reading chapter 1, who else would be involved in the conspiracy, right? This is a guy who's just conscripted every beautiful woman in the whole of Persia to come to his harem. Uh, He is despotic, he is ridiculous and indulgent. You kind of sympathize with the guards at this point of their want to, to be rid of this ruler who appears unfit for rule. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai, And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. What does Mordecai do? He could just let this happen. He's not morally culpable. But he acts to preserve the king's life. In the narrative, it's interesting This is the the might that has subdued the Jewish people. This is a ridiculous leader. But Mordecai, in saving him, demonstrates that even failed political authority still has a substance to it. It's still something worthy of honor and respect. Even worth saving the life of. And this fits neatly into the whole Bible's picture of our relation to authority, which is never completely just revolutionary to to protest and overthrow. It never really goes that way in Scripture. We are summoned to respect the legitimacy of authority, even compromised authority. You know, I don't think I can say anything more un-Australian tonight than that, than to respect authority even when it goes wrong and is compromised. But that's where Scripture leads us, as Mordecai leads us tonight. I was thinking about Titus chapter 3, verse 1, as I looked at Mordecai this week. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready to do whatever is good. Here is a, a posture of political engagement, regardless of the leader's competence. Being subject, obedient, and ready to do good. Isn't that not Mordecai here? ready to do good when needed. Can I urge you tonight to not slide into the apathy, the political apathy of our culture? I'm seeing a lot of young Christians disengage from the political climate because they are so disappointed in major parties. I want to suggest that the scriptures don't allow us to walk that path. But instead summon us to respect and engagement 
to be subject to protest even in that engagement, but to be ready to do good. That's what Mordecai demonstrates to us as part of the larger biblical picture here. But that's the last good news thing in the passage, really. It goes very downhill from there. You see, Haman and Xerxes together do something evil. But as this happens, remember, this is still a bit comedic. There's a humor to it, there's satire to it. Haman and Xerxes in what follows, they're they're characterized as ridiculous and a a bit kind of just simple, driven by simple, clear emotions. They're supposed to kind of appear like they're in a cartoon or a comic book. They're still being poked through. But what we see is something dark. First with Haman. And what we learn here is that it is terrible when hatred is handed authority. It is terrible when hatred is handed authority. Haman is the chief villain of the story of Esther. And as he's introduced, we get an idea about who he is that hooks us into the wider biblical story. And it hooks us into what, what his hatred is. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha. Now that's confusing, because wouldn't he honor Mordecai? No, no, no. He honors Haman, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. And all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, which is interesting, isn't it? Because he just saved the life of Xerxes. So what's the problem with Haman? What is happening here? There's one little hint in this story that a Jewish reader would pick up straight away, and it's that word, Agagite, which hooks us into an incident a bit earlier in Scripture between King Saul and a man called King Agag who had a conflict. Now guess who Mordecai is related to? King Saul. So we have someone of the line of King Agag and someone of the line of King Saul coming into contact with each other. And a Jewish audience would have this passage in the background. 1 Samuel 15. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they come up out of Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites. Totally destroy all that belongs to them. Saul took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle. The Lord commands Saul to do an act of judgment that had been waiting for a people called the Amalekites. Because further back in Scripture... The Amalekites had tried to destroy Israel at their most vulnerable point as they were journeying to the promised land out of Egypt. And the Lord says the day has come to judge them for that evil of trying to wipe out God's people. And Saul does it, but not quite. He keeps King Agag alive. And so we arrive at Esther and we have a descendant of King Agag who has just been given authority and power in Persia. And it's supposed to be a bit, oh no, moment in the story. The son of Saul and the son of Agag. So what does Haman decide to do? 
When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. And having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. With the background of 1 Samuel and Exodus further back, we see that Haman in his, and Mordecai are locked in the same thing that has been happening ethnically between these people over the centuries. And Haman here is acting almost in vengeance on what happened to the Amalekites, finishing what the Amalekites tried to do way back in Exodus, wipe out the people of God. This fits Esther into the wider story of the reality that God's people's place in the world is always precarious and there are always authorities that have hatred and come up against them. And hatred is the word to describe Haman. It says he's enraged. Haman is really close as a word to the word for anger in Hebrew. It's kind of like saying, Mr. Angry got really angry. It's just kind of that ridicule poking through again. Mr. Angry got really angry. It's, he's supposed to look a bit out of sorts and strange, like a cartoonish supervillain at this point, Haman. The Jewish writer, even as he pronounces this, is poking fun at Haman and the ridiculousness of his anger. But what he has decided is awful. And as we hear it, we need to feel the weight of it. This is what the Jewish people have faced all through their history. And awfully, in every era of the church, Christians have joined in. In displacing Jews, in adding arguments from Scripture to the case for opposing them and hating them. That even the followers of Jesus, we are, we have been complicit in violence against the Jewish people, which is an awful thing. Esther, this side of the Holocaust, of course, reads very differently. Knowing that in our last century, Harman's project was taken up again by another evil piece of political authority. And as we look at it in the wide sweep of Scripture, we're reminded that there are many brothers and sisters of ours across this world for whom the hatred of them and political authority overlaps even tonight. And they go to church today or tomorrow risking their lives. Because God's people, there's always a hatred stirred against them. And I was thinking about Haman's anger the depth of his rage, it reminded me of Revelation 12, 17, where there's a dragon who is enraged, and it says he's going to after to eat the children of Israel and of Jesus. There is a demonic strength to this hatred through the ages that seeks to annihilate God's people, and it is real. It is worth mourning and owning. The absolute terror when hatred is handed authority. But that's only one half of what happens here. 
Haman then goes to Xerxes. And we see with Xerxes just this failure of political discourse and advice. We kind of walk into the room of this deal that's done, and Xerxes, like Haman, is pictured one-dimensionally. He's passive. At the end, they drink wine together. He's as indulgent, as ridiculous as the chapter before. We're supposed to see him as kind of what happened. What were you in this room? He's having fun poked at him too, but what we see happen is an absolute political disaster. Haman walks in and says to King Xerxes, there's this certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom and they keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people and they don't obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I'll give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. It is a slippery, underhanded piece of rhetoric that Haman uses to win Xerxes to the cause. Notice what I put in yellow. He emphasizes here about the Jewish people, unnamed as they are. He doesn't even say who they are. He emphasizes their difference, their separateness, how all other people are here and they are over there how they don't respond to the king's authority, which we, don't know, which we know is not true because Mordecai just saved the king's life. Haman is doing here what all people do when they want to get rid of someone. He's making them appear just a little bit less than human. Just a little bit lower. They're not like other people. They're a bit separate. They're a bit less. Not very useful to keep around. And by slightly lowering the value of the Jewish people with just a little bit of slippery language, he kind of oils the wheels for their destruction. What we see here is the great failure of political discourse. When issues and people are talked about in lower than human terms, that then readies decisions that hurt the vulnerable and hurt those on the other end. It happens in our country too. I was talking to a researcher in Melbourne who's been studying political discourse around refugees and talked about the introduction of phrases like boat people as a very subtle way of maybe just demonstrating subtly that the people who come on boats, they're not as much people as we are. You know, they don't say, oh, people fleeing from war or from famine or from difficulty. They're just boat people. They're not really people. Oiling decisions to be made against them. Here is something to stand on as God's people. To refuse to let political discourse like this happen. To refuse to participate in language that lowers the values of any human being made in the image of God to advocate for issues and people in the right way, in their full value as people belonging and made by an intimate and loving creator. One of the big problems also in this scene is that Harmon's the only one in it. There's no other advisors with him. There's one sole voice. Another failure, 
Kings should have thousands of advisors helping them see things from every angle. But here there is just Haman, because Xerxes made sure he was the most high above all the others. And so we see a failure of discourse and a failure of advice. Proverbs knows this already. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Remove the dross from the silver, and a silversmith can produce a vessel. Remove wicked officials from the king's presence, and his throne will be established through righteousness. But this does not happen in the presence of Xerxes, and without knowing the name of this people, without knowing the particulars, he hands his signet ring to Haman, all of his power and authority, so that Haman can stamp a decree with the full authority of Persia and wipe out the Jewish people. It is an awful failure. A narrowing of counsel, a lowering of value. This is how evil happens. And seeing it, I think, is helpful for us to know what we can do in response. But you might be at this point of the sermon saying, this is all really depressing and dark, really. There is nothing really satirical and humorous or good in this at all. What are we to do with this? Why would the Jews read this as a hope-giving story? Well, there's one detail in this story that hints to where all the ridicule of Haman and Xerxes are pointing as well. That there is a greater hand. When Haman is deciding what day to kill the Jews, what does he do? He casts lots. He throws the dice to see what day might be the best day to do it. The reason you cast lots is because you're looking for a higher power out there that might aid you in what you are doing, that might tell you the right time to do it. And therefore, this, this fate or this luck or this power might enable it to happen. It's called the purr. But Jews know from Scripture and from the story of Esther that the lot, the purr, always remains in the Lord's hand. And so a Jew reading this story would see that word purr and know that this is the beginning of the great story of the festival of Purim. When the lot was cast against God's people, when a day was decided for them to be eliminated, but then God, the God in whom that lot, hand of the lot was, overturned it in marvelous victory. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The lot is always in the Lord's hand. And by putting this detail of the purr into the story, that, that the author is just hinting at that maybe there's a bigger power at play here. The power that opposed the Amalekites in Exodus. The power that summoned and sent King Saul against the Amalekites again. That will again save God's people from annihilation. That's the hope in this story. That's why Xerxes and Haman are cardboard cutouts. Because there is a bigger power behind things. That in the absence of God in this evil moment, there is actually a sense of his presence, contradictory as it may be. That's why Jews in camps across Europe in the, in the Second World War picked up this story and told it to each other on Purim. Here's a beautiful handwritten copy of Esther in Yiddish 
that combines this book of Esther with inmates from a camp in Transylvania. And the writer took it and sung it and played it with music to lift the spirit of the camp. To remind them that the lot is in the Lord's hand. That the powers against them were like Xerxes and Haman. Ridiculous, but not ultimate. And that he, the Lord would not let his people be annihilated. You know, they tried to annihilate the Lord Jesus. All of human hatred was focused upon him. And they tried to rid him from the earth. And they thought they had. But the Lord overturned it. And raised him to life. And so it is with all of God's people. Those lost, dead, have been slain by hatred across the ages. The Lord will not let his people be annihilated. But like Jesus, will raise them to life again. That's the comedy in this story. The flipping of annihilation into resurrection life. That great hope that though we appear at the edge of things, political authority arrayed around us and its failure will not have the final say because God will not let his people nor his world be eliminated. And so we can look at political authority It's failure. And go, it's okay. This is ridiculous and terrible. But the lot remains in the hand of the Lord. And he will not let his people be annihilated, but will raise them to everlasting life. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.